0: Have a Bible, and I hope you do. I'm going to ask you to go to 1 Timothy chapter 5 with me this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 5, and I'm going to continue to unpack these first 16 verses, which I have to be honest, we're probably not all going to get through again today. I'm going to try to get these first 8 verses taken care of, and then in a couple of weeks, finish verses 9 to 16. As we deal with what has turned out for me anyway, to be one of the most difficult passages in this letter from Paul to Timothy. Often people think that the difficult passages come in chapter two and three dealing with men and women and who should be pastors and who are deacons and what they should do. And I actually think that's pretty straightforward if you let the text just speak for itself. But this passage has so much work to be done to get from the first century to the 21st century. And so I want to... uh, read this passage for you this morning, but I I wanted to ask you a couple of quick questions before I do that, which is this, starting out with, how do you like to be treated? You don't have to answer that out loud, but I want you to think in terms of how do you like to be treated? Like From how do you like others to treat you, whether you're married or single, how do you like to be treated? If you're married, how do you like your spouse to treat you? If you have children, how do you like your kids to treat you? If you're out in the world and you're getting customer service, how do you like to be treated? How do you like people to talk to you and and approach you? And I tell you, I got a real lesson in this this past week. I've had a very, very up-and-down week. And Monday lived up to every stereotype you can think of in regards to Mondays. I mean, the old rock band, Bengal said it's just another manic Monday. And it really, really was for me this past Monday. One of the things I had to do was I had to call the phone company. And I had to make arrangements to the church. We had changed credit cards, and I needed to make sure the billing information. But we got a phone bill in the, in the mail, and it was for almost twice as much as what our regular phone bill was. And so I didn't think that was right. So I called the phone company on Monday, and I got a particular guy on the phone. And from the moment we got on the phone together, it it wasn't going to work out well. And this guy was really condescending. Um, In fact, at one point I asked him, I said, do you really think this is good customer service? And here's his words to me. I've been on the phone with you for seven minutes giving you customer service. And uh, at that point then, I had to pray. And uh, because, again, he knew that this was Calvary Baptist Church, he knew that I was Pastor Stephen Bray, so the Lord has a wonderful grace of going, I couldn't rip into him, and uh, I was learning patience and suffering and all these things, and I said, well, I appreciate your time, we'll have to agree to disagree, and I got off the phone, and then I went to my big window in my office and looked out and said, Lord, why, why are people like that in the world brought into my life today? through a series of circumstances, I had to call back the phone company because I ended up making a few other discoveries. And so I had to call back and I said, well, Lord, if I get this kind of, I'm going to have to accept his judgments. He's the guy in authority and we'll do these things. But when I called back the second time, I got a different person, a lady, a French lady, and you would not believe the difference in customer service. She was pleasant and kind. She still uh, held up the end of the phone company's policies and procedures, but she listened to me explain our position, and she asked if she could put me on hold and said, would that be okay? And she said, I promise not to be gone very long. And when she came back on the phone, she said, Pastor Bray, actually she said, Reverend Bray, which is a bit freaky-deaky for me, but anyway, she said that, and she said, I've talked to some people in authority, and we would like to offer you and your church this. And they were wonderfully kind. And it was a completely different experience, even the way she just treated me. And she was very, very kind to us as a church, and it really worked out well. But I said to her after, I said, honey, I just have to compliment you. Whether I got my way or you got your way, whatever, you just were so patient and kind. The voice you used, the way you approached me, it was just such a different experience in the way she treated me. And there were several times she corrected my understanding of how the phone company works. But she did so very nicely. Now, I would submit to you that in 1 Timothy chapter 5, that's exactly what Paul is trying to teach an entire church. It's how we treat each other, how we treat each other. You'll notice that the title of my sermon for last week, this week, and again in a couple of weeks is called A Biblical Social Justice. When the church acts like family. And so today, we're all the way back here to 1 Timothy. This is Paul writing to his protege. He's being asked to straighten things up in a very gifted, but has become a very dysfunctional church, the church at Ephesus. Paul has asked Timothy to confront bad leadership. He's asked him to reestablish good leadership. He's asked him to remind the entire church of what and how a church should think, how they should act, and how they should love. And how they should live. And we last left off Paul talking personally. In fact, the first two verses of this passage in 1 Timothy 5 is Paul talking to Timothy personally. And he begins by finishing up that chat and then telling Timothy what I've said from way back in the beginning. Are you ready for this? This is what we said about all of this. I really believe this should be our understanding of our Christian life as it relates to the church. Right doctrine... Leads to right living and always results in right relationships. Now, that to me is foundational. If your doctrine is right, the litmus test is you live right. You live right because you do what you believe. From the youngest of you to the oldest, let me hear you, let me say that again and help you understand. You do what you believe. You can tell me you believe all kinds of stuff, but you do what you believe. I used this example here before when I did the Back to the Bible week on the radio. I use this. I know about bungee cords. I believe they exist. I believe that they're really good and people look like they have a good time doing it. But I will never let a stranger stick an oversized elastic band on my back, giggle and smile, give me a quick shove and say, have a great time. Because I don't believe in them. I know of them, I know about them, but I don't believe in them. And a lot of people know of Jesus, know about Jesus, but don't believe in Jesus because you do what you believe. Okay, so right doctrine leads to right living and always, not sometimes, always results in right relationship. Now, I'm not saying that is the absence of conflict. We've got a whole Bible filled with it but you will always resolve it properly. You'll always understand how to approach conflict, how to approach confrontation, how to approach betrayal, how to approach misunderstanding, how to approach being hurt, how to approach being taken advantage of. You'll always filter it through your theology, which controls your living and will result in your right understanding of relationships. So now I want to read verses 1 to 16 again, and I want you to do a little test while I'm reading it. Be honest with yourself and go... Two things. What's the number one thing that jumps out to you in this passage? And then being honest to say, I have no idea what this is all about. Because I'm going to tell you, I'm still learning what this is all about. Okay? First Timothy chapter five, beginning at verse one, Paul begins speaking personally to Timothy. He says, Timothy, do not rebuke, again, if you write in your Bible, circle that, that's a key word. Do not rebuke an older man, but then he gives you the positive, but encourage him as you would a father. Now, that whole rebuke and courage carries forward to younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, and then he clues up how you do this not rebuke but encourage as you treat older men, younger men, older women, younger women, notice, in all purity. So there's a, there's a pureness, there's an integrity, there's a respect, there's an honor involved in how he is to and how a church is to treat each other in it. Then he gets where I think very personal and we got to figure out how do we take this first century stuff and bring it 21 centuries into our world. He says in verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. Now notice this, for this is pleasing in the sight of the Lord. I want to make sure people understand something in our church so as we unpack this. If you get the gospel, you can never make God love you any more than He already does. God will never love you more or love you less. He is love. God loves you. You can't earn His love. He doesn't show favorites. He loves everybody in this room, especially if you are His children, with a great love, according to Ephesians chapter 2, right? He loves us with a great love. You will never get Jesus or God to love you more, and you can never do anything to make Him love you less, but you can please Him and displease Him. All right, Debbie and I are parents of three children, and we love our three children. Our boys are 21 and, and 19, and our daughter is 13, and we love them so, so much. And there is no way for them to make us love them more. I, I, I just love them. But they can please me and displease me. And I do have to let them know. That doesn't affect my love. In fact, sometimes me reminding them that I am displeased is actually an act of my love. And in fact, sometimes if I ignore what they're doing, that can actually be a sign of my sinfully not loving them enough. So don't confuse God's love with pleasing Him. Because Paul says this is pleasing in God's sight. Remember the writer of Hebrews? Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Okay, so we can please him and displease him. And in this case, when children or grandchildren learn to show some return to their parents or to a widow, to a, a mom who's lost her husband or something of that nature, this is pleasing in the sight of God. Now, Paul goes further, verse 5. She who is truly a widow, that's, that is left all alone, no children, no grandchildren, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never been completely alone. But I do have times when I felt completely alone. I told you last week about my trips to Russia. I remember the first time, I'm going to admit that sometimes I can really do dumb things. We shared this with a couple of couples that were at our, tr- our house last night. I had to go to Russia for the first time. I left my house in Charlottetown, drove to Moncton to pick up the plane there. And because that was an Air Canada flight, I knew that I could just give them my name, show them my, my cell phone, I'd get on the plane. What I forgot to think about was I was booked in Toronto on Aeroflot, which is Russia's national, and they demand you have the actual physical ticket, and I left the tickets back in Charlottetown. So I land in Toronto, go to the ticket counter, and realize I've got no tickets. Now, it took the full six-hour wait I had in Toronto for the Russian officials of Arafat to figure out whether they were going to let me go or not. We got faxes and all this kind of stuff, and they weren't going to let us, and I had people all across the country praying for me because I didn't know what I was going to do. And finally, this, this older gentleman that reeked of vodka, and I'm not trying to feed any stereotypes, but he did, finally made a judgment call at the last minute to let me get on that plane. And so I had the 10-hour flight from Toronto to Russia, and I get off, and for the first time I realized I'm landing in a country. I'd never been to Russia. I'm traveling all by myself. I land, I walk out, and even, like, it's not like it's a language where you can even pick apart the letters, all right? They've got more letters in their alphabet. Some of them don't look like ours, and I just realized I'm all alone. I didn't know what to do or what. I'm trying to navigate myself through customs. The guy looks really mad. I don't know if he's having a bad day. I give him my stuff. I try to look pleasant. He looks at me and scowls. He grunts a few things at me in Russian. I keep saying, I don't speak Russian. And he looks even more irritated. And then finally, I think I'm doomed. I'm going to prison. I just, I don't know what's going to, like I can disappear. Nobody will know. And he stamps the thing and gives me one of these. And I go, "I, I guess I'm through. And I walk through and I walk out, I get my luggage. And then I walk out into a sea of people. And again, I'm realizing I know nobody there was some dude supposed to pick me up. I wasn't told what he looked like. I wasn't told what I was supposed to do. So I'm standing there. Cars are coming, cabs, and then all of a sudden I hear, Mr. Bray, Mr. Bray. And I'm looking around and I'm like, well, there can't be any more than one Mr. Bray here. And and I found my guy. But I can't tell you how alone I felt. And in feeling alone, This kind of makes sense when Paul says someone who's truly alone continues in in prayer. Because when I felt alone, my natural inclination was to pray. It was to cry out to God. And so Paul says, widows that are truly left all alone, he kind of says it kind of makes sense that people that are all alone and they have no support and they have no help and they realize they live in a culture where they're going to be marginalized and taken advantage of and, and you are left to the pity of someone to be kind to you. He, he kind of says, you know, this kind of lends itself to being continually in supplications and prayers. But then he also says in verse 6, and this is one of the ones that I'm freaked out about, and that's in, it's in the Bible. Because Paul says, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. And I'm like, wait, what?" Paul, like you were kind of nice back in verse 1 and 2. Well, now you seem like you're just cutting it off. Then he says, command these things as well in verse 7, so that they, that's the widows, may be without reproach. But if anyone, now he gets back to the family again, he's in verse 8, but if anyone does not provide for his or her relatives... And especially for members of his or her household, he or she has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Those are strong words. Verse 9, let a widow... And I would say that verse 9 is a changing of thought and process. Once you get to verse 9, he's, he's moving from being nice or be kind or generous or supportive or protective of, of widows to saying, the, there are going to be widows that you're going to find that are just specially gifted women, and now here's how you're going to deal with them. So he says in verse 9, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. And again, one of the keys to this when I get to it in a couple weeks... In Paul's culture, you reached kind of maturity. You, you were past that age where you, now you were like, I'm in my golden years. I'm, I'm preparing for death when you were 60. That's why he says that. There is a cultural ramification by which he says that. That's probably not the case in 21st century Canada. Some people will say that 50 is the new 40 and 60 is the new 50 and all of those types of things, right? So we have to flush this out a little bit, but he says... Don't enroll a widow who is less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband. And by the way, for all those controversial passages, the wife of one husband here is the exact same expression as back in chapter 3 when he's talking about elders and deacons having been the husband of one wife. And what it means is fidelity. It means loyalty. I'm a one-woman man. I'm a one-man woman. Did that make sense? I hope it did. Just Anyway, the opposite of a one-woman man is what a woman's supposed to be, all right? So that's what he means, okay? Having a reputation. Notice this, having a reputation. Not you do the occasional good thing and everybody's like, whoa. But having a reputation for it. You're known for it. Having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Again, I would challenge you, take that list and go to, we go to Rome, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Look at the list of elders and deacons, and it will be eerily similar. So this is, a, this is something that's really serious to Paul, that he's telling Timothy about how to look at these particular widows who seem to be specifically gifted. Okay. Now think in terms of the big picture. Then he goes on, he says, but refuse to enroll younger widows. And again, I, I, I'm i struggling through all this. He says, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, as if that's not bad enough, he says, besides that, they learn to be idlers, go uh. uh, uh going from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary, that's Satan, no occasion for slander, or those controlled by Satan. For some, now notice this, he says, for some, Timothy, even at Ephesus, have already strayed after Satan." And then he clues it up, All and I would say this goes back to, again, verses 4 and 5 and verse 8. He finishes off. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. And may God, add his blessing, to the reading of his word, and just by me reading it you all understand it so now we can have the benediction let's close in prayer and now we'll go live out what this passage means. Right. That's exactly right. That's what I thought. Now the reason I showed you that video at the beginning is because a passage like this we are very tempted to do what the person did with that bible. Take a marker and block it out cuz it's not easy. It's difficult. You're going to brush up against things that you're going to have to really study God's Word. But remember, I asked you, what jumped out at you in this particular passage? Well, I'm sure that the word widow probably jumped out at you and what we're supposed to do. And But if you're like me, as I've been reading this, you likely said to yourself at some point, what does this mean? What does this mean for me personally? What does this mean for my family? What does this mean for a church? And how does this apply to me and to us today in 2016 here in St. John's, Newfoundland in Canada? And I don't know about you, but have you ever wondered as well that when we come to passages like this, and there are many of them in the Bible, we, we, we tend that those ones that are a little harder to figure out or those ones when we kind of give them a terse read, we go, well, that doesn't apply to me or at least not at this time. So you do one of a few things. You blow them off. You ignore them. Or you simply say, well, I'll apply what I think it means and not really check it out. Or you go with whatever somebody else told you without ever confirming that what they said is actually true. Or you simply not even bother. I remember talking with someone here in Newfoundland, actually when I was younger, when I was first married to Debbie, and we were having a discussion about the Bible, and that was actually about First Timothy. And it was a discussion about First Timothy chapter 2 and 3 and about the roles of men and women and all these types of things. And I was very young at the time. I was in my early 20s, and I was propagating what I felt that the passage clearly read. And I'll never forget what the lady said to me. She said, well, you know, the truth is I don't read a lot of Timothy because Paul was a chauvinist, so I don't read it. That was her answer to me. That was her approach to God's Word. Now, that I don't say that in standing in judgment of her. I'm saying we can all be guilty of that. We can all be guilty of having parts of the Bible that we go, this is difficult. So you know what? I'm not going to bother because it scares me or I'm afraid of it. I don't, I, don't, I don't understand it. But, folks, listen, there's nothing better than getting into God's Word And studying and saying, Lord, I don't know and I don't understand. Help me. Explain this to me. Show me. Bring people into my life. If you will cry out to God and say, Lord, I want to know your word and I want to know what's right and I want to do what's right, God will answer that prayer over time. That's why on this Bible here, I've said this many times, this is my devotional Bible I have here, my name, and then Psalm 119.18 is engraved. It reminds me every time I open this book that Psalm 119.18 is when David says, Open the eyes of my heart that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And so every time I try to come to God's Word and I say, Lord, I'm going to read things in here that I don't like, I will read things in here that sometimes I don't understand. I will read things in here that are difficult, but Lord, open the eyes of my heart. Talk to me, show me, teach me, bring people into my life. Give me that passion and that sense of urgency to go read, study, ask questions, and to stick with it until you, Father, by your Holy Spirit, show me what I'm supposed to know. And so that's what we need to focus on here. Now, the other trap that we can come to in a passage like this is that we'll view the entire passage, but we won't view it through the filter of what what was first said. So I would submit to you that verses 3 to 16, you need to read that through the filter of what is said in verses 1 and 2, all right, which is how we're supposed to treat each other. Now, let's remember a couple of things before I even jump into the passage. This whole letter is important for us to know, understand, and apply. So we don't get to cherry pick 1 Timothy. We don't get to say, well, I like the first chapter and I kind of like the last chapter. There's a little bit in chapter 2 I like. There's some of chapter 3 I like. There's some of chapter 4. I skip over most of chapter 5. And then I, you know, I li- you don't get to do that, folks. We, all this letter is for us to know, understand, and apply. Never forget back in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, what does Paul say? I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you. Why? So that if I delay, you may know, not you may hope, you may guess, you know, may know, how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Now, the other one is, number two, our love for each other and our unity with each other proves we are who we say we are and that Jesus is who He said He is. Now, once again, I've learned a couple of principles in being a pastor and even a leader is that repetition aids learning. And one of the fun ones I was told is that just when I get sick of saying it, people will start to get it. So I will say these things over and over again, which is, remember, we've learned this many, many times together as a church since I've been with you for 15 uh, 15 months now. John 13, 34 and 35, what does Jesus say? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. That's the command. Now, what is the result of that command? By this, all people, not some not most, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 1 Timothy chapter 5 verses 1 and 2 are framed in this command from God. The way you and I love each other as Christians... The way we treat each other, speak to each other, pray for each other, sacrifice for each other, get to know each other, get out of our comfort zones with each other, find out all of our wrinkles and all of our flaws and all of our idiosyncrasies. It's one of the great adventures I'm going on. I leave this afternoon and I will live with Jeff Percy and Steve Daw for five days. Pray for me. Well, actually, probably pray for them. We are definitely going to know each other more after this week. We'll know who snores and who smells. We'll know how long it takes us to get ready. We'll know how long we take showers and all that stuff. We're going to know each other. And will we love each other? Will we care for each other? Will we have each other's back? Will we do the things? Because how we love each other proves to this city that we are truly Christians. How you and I love each other proves that we are truly Christians. Then in chapter 17 of John, what is truly the Lord's Prayer, in verses 20 to 22, Jesus prays this just before the cross. I do not ask for these only. He's saying, Lord, I pray not just for the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Folks, understand, that's you and me. I want to remind you again that when Jesus Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he went to the cross to bear the sins of the entire world, he prayed for you and I. If you are his son or his daughter, he prayed for you. He said, I pray not for only those, but for those who will believe in me through their word. What? That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So that, now here's the result so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now again, folks, I want to remind you of this because I believe this is important to filter 1 Timothy 5. How you and I love each other proves to the world we're Christians, that we're truly followers of Jesus. How you and I as a church are united around God's Word, how we make much of God's Word, even the difficult parts, even the hard parts, even the parts that are hard to understand, even the parts that sometimes have controversy, how you and I are unified together around the gospel proves to a watching city that Jesus Christ is God. Now, now, mull over the profundity of that. If that's a word, if not, I made it up. It's a Stevism. But understand the profundity. Oh, that's my English guy saying that it is a word, so I'm on the right track. Of that statement. Folks, really boil this down. How you and I love each other proves we are followers of Jesus. How you and I, we as a church, are united around God's Word proves to a watching world that Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is the Son of God. So I want you to realize that also God is a God of order. Not only does Jesus say love each other, not only does He say be unified with each other, but He's also a God of order. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 39 and 40. He says, So my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy... That means to proclaim the truth. That's what I'm doing right now for you. I'm prophesying Scripture out to you. And do not forbid speaking in tongues. Now, that's a great passage. Now you're all saying, yeah, I'd like you to preach on that one now, Pastor Stephen. Clear that mess up for me, all right? Another Sunday, okay? But notice what he says at the end. But all things, all things should be done decently and in order. So God wants us to love each other. God wants us to be unified around God's Word together. But God also says there's a right way and a wrong thing, wrong way to do things. I want things done decently and in order. So I want us to look at verses 1 and 2 of our passage and see what is this number one thing that Paul wants Timothy to think about as he leads this whole church. And, and what we should be thinking about is Calvary Baptist Church in this city that is highly religious, but also highly scarred by religion. If you watch NTV or CBC, you know that there's been hearings again about Mount Carmel. You have heard people talk about priests and nuns and reverends and ministers and all of these types of things and how that filters out into our culture. And so people's attitudes in this city, in this province, is either religion is in it for itself or, you know what, religion had its try, it didn't work, jettison it all, and let's live our way. I mean, for heaven's sakes, folks, there's a tribunal in the United Church of Canada trying to figure out if a woman who says she's an atheist should still be a pastor. She says, I do not believe in God, and I do not believe in God's Word, but I'll be a United United Church minister. And they got to convene a council to figure out whether that's a valid point of view. Now, it is funny, but it is tragic. It's tragic, and it is a result of religion gone wrong, and that's where we weren't being Christians. Remember, Christians are how we love each other and how we're unified, not unified just in whatever you want, unified around the Word of God. Okay, so number one, which by the looks of things is all I'm getting out because you're really good, lucky today, because I have to get on a plane, so I have to be done on time today. So you all fluked out into that one, okay? So God tells the church to be a real family. God tells the church to be a real family. And to be honest with you, that if you take anything from this, that's what I hope you will leave with and you will mull over this week. God tells the church, every one of you in this room, if you claim to be a disciple of Jesus... In other words, you say, I I believe in him. I don't just know of him. I don't just know about him. I believe in him. I trust him. I trust what he says about me, about other people. I trust him with what he says I'm supposed to do because I believe in what he's done and what he says about me. So God tells the church, be a real family. Be a real family. Don't be a pretend family. Don't be a Sunday-only family. Remember the video from last week? When the, when the family all come in and all the triumphant music as they come waltzing in, the family of four, and they're all dressed to the nines, and then we get the camera that tells us what really happened on the way to church, and he's got his, half, his head is half shaved and all the things that happened, and, and the kid had an ice cream sandwich and called that breakfast and all those types of things. How many times have we just survived to walk in the front door on a Sunday morning? But then when we walk in here, we're like, hey, I'm super Christian. Hey, Watch me, I got a really big Bible, and I carry it at least once a week. But we're supposed to be a real family. See, Paul starts this section by giving Timothy a blueprint for how he personally is to relate to each group in the church. Older men, younger, younger men. Older women, younger women. But I want you to step back for a second with me. Step back and imagine. You remember that John Lennon song, Imagine, that he wrote? I want you to imagine with me. Imagine, if you will, a family. A real family. A family where a man loves God and his wife. A family where a woman loves God and her husband. A family where a set of parents, a man and a woman, I might add, a set of parents love God together and their kids together, where the kids in a family know God, are taught about God, and see that teaching put into practice. Imagine a family where God is center, where the Bible is read and followed, where forgiveness and confession, where honesty and truth, where trust and love. And respect and the good of each other is sought after, is defended, and is protected. What would that look like? Imagine. According to this, Paul says that's possible it might not be perfect but it can be striven for and it'll have power in here and out there now what would that look like paul wants timothy to see his leadership as he goes to this church he wants to see wants him to see his leadership in terms of are you ready for this appropriateness so the, what, is, what is meekness? It says that Jesus is meek. And remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I love this definition. Meekness is power under control. Power under control. That was the essence. Jesus was known for all of his power, but it was always under control. It wasn't the, the world's cliche that, um, what is it? Um, uh, on, 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 on perfect power corrupts perfectly. Absolute power, right. Corrupts absolutely. That's it. All right. So this is what he's saying here. Here is your, I want you to view your leadership in terms of appropriateness and example. But most of all, he wants him to understand his leadership in terms of relationship. In relationship. Think of all the ways that the New Testament thinks and talks about the church. Have you ever thought about it? In 1 Corinthians, we're told that the church is a body. And that how it functions. We hear, we read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter eleven, chapter twelve. We read about it in Ephesians chapter four. All right, where the where the church is a body. We're also told in Ephesians chapter six that the church is a building, or a temple. Sorry, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter six. We're told in Ephesians five that the church is a bride. It's the bride of Christ. And here in Timothy, we're told that the church is a family. A family. Jesus Christ himself said this. You remember when he was busy in that house and he was teaching and healing and, and some people show up and they say, your mom and dad are outside and your brothers and they want to talk to you. And then Jesus does the very thing that shocks everyone. He goes, who is my mother and who is my father? You are my mother. You are my father. You are my family. But yet you'll see that even though he said that, see, Jesus understood the dynamic of 1 Timothy 5 because he understood the church as his family, but he also understood what it meant to take care of his physical family. Family. Something's here Because remember when He hung on a cross that He says to John, when, when He says to His mother Mary, Behold your son, and to John, Behold your mother, even while He's dying for the sin of the world, yours and mine, Jesus still fulfills His role as the firstborn son in a family and takes care of His mom. And we're told in the Gospels that from that day forth, Mary went to live with John and she was cared for by John for the rest of her life. So Jesus... Fulfills all these things. But I want you to realize that the church is talked in terms of growing and maturing, of being gifted and created by God, being loved by Jesus and empowered by the Spirit. And in these two short verses, they summarize so much of what we know to be in the Bible. Remember, Galatians chapter 5 tells us about the fruit of the Spirit, right? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, gentleness, suffering, all these types of things. Remember, there are 30, 30 one another commands in the New Testament. Pray for one another, love one another, bear one another's burdens, confront one another, care for one another, fellowship with one another, all of the types of things that we're supposed to do. We know that husbands and wives should love God and each other, that parents who are called to love God and their children, to children being called to love God and obey and honor their parents. So, folks, listen to me. As we stop for today, realize we are all called. We are all called to respond to God's love for us by responding in love towards everyone in our lives. Even in the video that we had from the New City Catechism, how God is going to save who we will save, but God calls us to love and respect everybody. We are called to do that. We are called to respond to God's love for us. Now, how do we do that? By responding in love towards everyone in our lives, not just the people you like. Not just the people who are easy to get along with. Not just with the people that are in your social group. Not just with the people who have a very similar life to yours. We're called to respond to everyone in our lives with a, with a life of love regardless of their age, their color, their background, their history. It doesn't matter. From family to enemies. From church folks to co-workers, whether you're an employer or an employee, whether you're rich or poor, regardless of your gender, your culture, your upbringing, your language, your past, or your experience, once you've met Jesus, you've been changed. Now, let's stop and ask. Have you been changed by Jesus? Have you? What does that look like? What does that look like? I'm haunted by a song sometimes that I listen to. Are we just playing games at the foot of the cross? One of the verses says, we're so quick to judge them, but so slow to see how the games that these soldiers played are played by you and me as we fight for position in the church of God while the world just goes on dying without the Savior's love. Are we just playing games at the foot of the cross? If you've met Jesus, again, if you know him in relationship, if we are bound together as a family, we love each other, we're unified around God's word, it changes the way we think, the way we talk, the way we act, the way we sacrifice for each other. We don't just put out cliches. We don't just offer platitudes. We are willing to get out of our comfort zone and love on each other. And then a watching world says, I don't know if I like them. I certainly don't know if I agree with them. But one thing I can say, they love each other and they love that Bible and they will not move off of it. I am reminded of Pliny the Younger, that great, great historian who was writing to, to Trojan the Emperor Emperor, as he was talking about rounding up Christians. And he talks about how they met, and it's a fascinating read, how they gathered together and they sang hymns and they, all this type of stuff. And he said, we've arrested them and all this. And he gives his full commentary. And at the end of it, he says, I don't know if I believe in them or not, but I will tell you this, Emperor, they die well. That's what he writes. They die well. In other words, as they faced persecution, they simply trusted in God. So Calvary Baptist, this is as far as I got. I got to the beginning of verses 1 and 2. But have you've met Jesus, how has it changed you? Are we loving each other the way we're supposed to? How do you like to be treated? Remember we started with? So I want to show you just a quick video as we end. And while that's playing, I'm going to ask our music team to come. And we're going to sing a song together. And I'll promise to pick up this sermon right where we left off. So.